At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Some of the excerpts you will hear in this episode of the American Muse podcast are graciously supplied by New World Records. Similar to the mission of this podcast, New World Records strives to preserve neglected treasures of the past and nurture the creative future of American music. If you like what you hear and want to purchase full recordings, please go to newworldrecords.org. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. A precocious young composer, the teacher of Charles Ives, and a non-nationalistic Scottish work undeniably influenced by Tchaikovsky, even though it may have been intended to do the exact opposite, are all headline descriptions of the topic for this episode of the American Muse podcast, Horatio Parker, and his work on Northern Ballad. Youngest of the Boston Six, Horatio Parker was born 1863 in Auburndale, Massachusetts, a rural area at the time, now subsumed by the Boston city limits. He studied with George Whitefield Chadwick at the New England Conservatory of Music, and eventually, like most serious musicians at the time, went to Europe and studied with Joseph Reinberger at the Royal Music School in Munich. A similar comment by both these teachers points to a characteristic that Parker carried throughout his compositional career. Chadwick, speaking of the young Parker roughly aged 17 to 19, says he was far from docile. In fact, he was impatient of the restrictions of musical form and rather rebellious of the discipline of counterpoint and fugues. 
His lessons usually ended with his swallowing his medicine, but with many a wry grimace. This quote probably says as much about the youthfulness of Parker as it does the fastidious Chadwick and his own workmanship-like character. Yet, while later studying with Reinberger, also a former teacher of Chadwick, an observation by the Boston music critic William Apthorpe would confirm Parker's temptation to go against the grain. It was said of H.W. Parker that when he was a student in Munich under Reinberger, he was repeatedly introduced some new wrinkle, some unheard of effect. Certain of these musical inventions were distasteful to the master, and others were railed at playfully but secretly endorsed and even imitated by Reinberger himself. Upon returning to the United States, Parker moved to New York and bounced around several church positions. This is where Parker found the strongest market for his compositions, as any choral, organ, or piano work he wrote was quickly performed and highly praised. At the end of his time in New York, Parker spent one lone year teaching at the famous National Conservatory of Music in America. Famous mostly because this is the school at which Antonin Dvorak taught during his highly publicized visit to the New World. And that lone year, 1892 to 1893, overlapped with Dvorak's first year. Eventually, Parker returned to Boston, having a substantial reputation as a composer, mostly of choral works. In an ironic twist, relating to the observations of Parker as a young man, musicologist and biographer William Kearns found in Parker's diaries that one of the reasons he left his church position was, quote, problems of discipline among the boys in the Holy Trinity Choir. He complained that they are a burden to the choir master and expressed the hope that the adult mixed choir at his new appointment, would leave him more time for the important work of composition. I'm sure Chadwick had a laugh about that. Parker's stay in Boston only lasted one year as he then took a teaching position at Yale. There, Parker developed a long legacy of composition students, punctuated by Roger Sessions and the inimitable Charles Ives. Parker developed the History of Music course, served as editor of Music and Drama, served as dean of the School of Music, conducted and developed the New Haven Symphony Orchestra as both the professional ensemble and lab orchestra for Yale music students, all while continuing to compose. It was from this position that the rest of his life would be based. Also, this move towards academia would nudge Parker to analyze his own thinking about music, its place in society, and cause him to make definitive statements on the subject. Near the end of his life, Parker wrote in the Yale Review, In truth, there are two very different kinds of taste. May I call them high and low to save space? I think an enormous part of our national common progress is made by breaking down barriers between such types. Training the lowly to enjoy exalted music is known to be meritorious. I never heard anyone commend the reverse process of training the fastidious to recognize vulgar excellence. The man comes full circle, a somewhat rogue youth tamed by well-disciplined teachers now embracing the diversity of musical options. And as can be seen, 
These phases manifest in his composition as well. And the main event, Parker's tone poem, A Northern Ballad. Written over the 1898-99 winter, the symphonic poem was premiered by the New Haven Symphony, conducted by the composer himself. Overall, Parker's pure orchestral output is limited, though what he did produce was compelling. A Northern Ballad being one of his most mature works elicited quite a review from a New York newspaper in 1901. The impression left by the whole is that if Mr. Parker would give up writing church music, he has the stuff in him to turn out most effective secular material. His music is virile and full-bodied, and its eclecticism is not greater than that of most music now being written. Now, the first question I had about the title of this piece was, what North is Parker referring to? Apparently, it is nothing to do with America at all, but that of Scotland, a nod to his own Anglo-Saxon roots. There are some noticeable Scottish folk-like resemblances, and while one performance review describes the piece as, quote, Celtic rather than distinctly Norse, another notes its use of Scotch melodies and instrumental coloring. Rather than a nationalistic nod, it is possible this is a reaction to Dvorak's controversial statements about American music during his tenure as director of the National Conservatory of Music in New York, where, as I mentioned earlier, Parker and Dvorak overlapped for one year. In his biography on Parker, William Kern suggests that both its title and content suggest another step in Parker's move away from German influences. Okay. Maybe the title, but content, uh, as you will hear, and I will point out specifically, there are quite a few elements that bear a striking resemblance to Tchaikovsky's iconic Romeo and Juliet overture. Yes, I know. Tchaikovsky is, of course, Russian, not German. However, Tchaikovsky's style is a composite of many different influences from all over Europe not the least of which is German, Italian, and French, all in addition to Russian. So I have to say I disagree with Mr. Kearns, but let's listen and see what you think. The recording of Parker's A Northern Ballad You Will Hear is performed by the Albany Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Julius Heggie, recorded on the New World Records label in 1986. Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture recording is a video recording of the Orchestra della Radio della Svizzera Italiana conducted by Leopold Stokowski. Parker begins with an open-sounding woodwind chorale, not displaying either urgency or haste, merely a state of ancient being. This is unmistakably, unmistakably similar to Tchaikovsky's opening bars of the Romeo and Juliet Overture. Mm -hmm. 
As Parker opens up the dynamic range of the opening section, he adds the strings and sweetness of melodic inflection. Again, this compares closely to the Tchaikovsky in a similar moment of the introduction, just as the sound increases from the opening darkness. As Parker concludes the introduction, he moves immediately into a quick section introduced by a pithy riff in the strings that will become a main motive of the rest of the work. This quickly builds to a driving rhythmic undercurrent in the horns and violas, covered by another motivic remnant of the opening, played in canon between the violins and cellos. This finally arrives at the climax with a brass cannon on the same rhythmic theme and flows back down just as smoothly as it ascended.
another very close resemblance to Tchaikovsky, the quicker section jumps out with a tight rhythmic motive, quickly builds tension with a canonic theme, and surges to the first climax. As he closes out this opening portion of the Allegro, Parker briefly introduces a light motive. Light as an airy, free, not as in Wagner's leitmotif. In the flute and clarinet, that while fleeting, serves to break up some of the tension created so far. It is also quite probably a stylistic element Tchaikovsky would never have used in quite the same way. Parker then uses this lower moment to fake a recap, only to roar into a developmental section, alternating strings and winds with brass and percussion. At the very height of tension, Parker mixes declamatory chords and a decidedly off-putting rhythmic configuration with an emerging melody in the horns, once again originating from the slow introduction of the piece itself.
as Parker finally comes down off the high of the development, he gives us a very partial recap of the slow introduction with some modifications. Then we get a brilliant and very creative surprise. We do get a restatement of the main Allegro section, but it is now taken on the more anxious rhythmic motive underneath a sped-up recap of the introduction melodic material in the brass. Generally speaking, an overture-type piece will not always recap a slow introduction section, but in this case Parker has merged the two parts together to dramatic effect. When the piece builds to a final moment of climactic tension, Parker utilizes another recognizable element, not exclusive to Tchaikovsky, but certainly recognizable in many of his ballets and, once again, his Romeo and Juliet overture. As the melodic line in the strings develops and rises, the woodwinds and eventually horns alone begin a quick triplet pulse, giving a sense of nervous energy which drives to the overflowing moment at the top of the phrase. Here is a corresponding moment in the Tchaikovsky, that heartbreaking melody, a mix of love, lust, and impending death, that iconic moment when you say to yourself, oh, that's the piece. Long last, Parker gives us a coda. Here he sets the complete work at peace, expanding the long melodic lines that have come before, filling out the orchestration, and arpeggiating chords in the harp.
all lightening the air as if floating to its final rest at the concluding bars. To be completely honest, despite my many comparisons to Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture, I am not equating the two pieces in quality. I do believe that Tchaikovsky has more depth and ability to transport the listener to a superior experience. That is not to detract anything from a Northern Ballad and Parker's individual way of accomplishing this same task. My purpose is to both compare and differentiate the two composers, their styles, and above all, show how Parker's music is of high value to anyone willing to give it their time and ears. If you are one of those people, I trust you will come to a similar conclusion and live a better life for the experience. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, 
and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.